Hey everybody, and welcome in to another Q&A episode. Excited to have you here. And uh, we're gonna jump right in. And we have a good many questions to get to. I don't think I'll get to them all. And I'm gonna try to give shorter answers to these questions. I know last time, uh, I think we went about an hour and 20 minutes and we might've done like four questions, five questions maybe. And so I'm gonna try to get to more questions this time and have shorter answers. But if you know me, I'm not a short answer guy. <laughs> so I'm gonna do my very, very best. So we're gonna jump right in. I think I've got eight or nine questions here and we're gonna see if we can get to them all. So uh, number one, somebody asks, uh, I have a lot of Christian friends that say a little alcohol is okay for Christians and use verses that state, you just don't have to, uh, you just don't need to have strong drink or get drunk and that otherwise it's okay and that preaching against alcohol is not saying what the Bible says and they use it as a stumbling block for other things in the Bible. That's, I guess, their, their opinion, obviously. I have a million reasons I don't drink alcohol and don't think anyone should. I have my own arguments I use against it, but I'm curious if you can address what some feel is permissiveness in the Bible to drink alcohol, and how would you approach or answer this question? So obviously this is a hotbed topic, and the reason it's a hotbed topic is because people want to drink. That's why it's contentious. There's no other reason to be contentious on this issue other than to defend a practice um, that you are engaged in or want to engage in. So here's what I want to do. In order, one, to give a somewhat brief answer without spending an hour on this, and to avoid the common arguments against drunkenness and alcohol use, I want to kick the legs out from underneath the argument that you are representing to me on behalf of someone else. So let's, let's just say that the, the premise is of, of their perspective is that it's okay to drink as long as you don't get drunk. It's okay to drink as long as you don't get drunk. And, you know, we could ask to find drunk, and that's a very valid question. Um, and who defines drunk? Does the law define drunk? Like the laws of the state of Georgia, for example. Or is it um, a different standard? But here's a question. Is if not to experience something from the alcohol, then why drink? I mean, they have non-alcoholic wine. They have non-alcoholic beer, which is kind of ridiculous uh, and funny in, in a way because it's, it's ironic because no one drinks it for its taste, at least at first. It's, it's an acquired taste, uh, I am sure. But the primary reason is the effect that it has on us. So, yeah, okay, theoretically, if you could drink it and not get drunk, then what would be the moral opposition to it? It'd be like water or milk, you know? If drinking large portions of milk caused you to lose your ability to control yourself, uh, then we have to believe that there would be admonitions in the Bible against drinking too much milk, <laughs> right? Um, but 
wine and beer, alcohol, is not in that same category, right? It is inherently, that's what it's designed to do. That's its purpose. And now, uh, there's a lot of nuance to this argument, but, but one thing is that the, the person is misrepresenting their position to some extent by saying, hey, I don't drink to get drunk. Well, again, define drunk, and you, you drink in order to feel a certain way that the drug of alcohol makes you feel. And again, there's, there's good and bad ways to come at that argument. But my, my, what I want to do is this. Okay, let's just accept that for a second, hypothetically. And let's just say that is right. And let's just say that the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn uh, moderate use of alcohol as long as you don't get drunk. Let's just accept the premise. Okay. So I'm not saying that I do. I'm not saying that the Bible does. But for sake of time, let's just say that it does. Does that excuse the Christian? Does that excuse me to then use that technicality to drink? And the Apostle Paul to that would give an emphatic no. And I want to give you a scripture to think about here, and this is going to be in an upcoming episode here very soon, and it is called, the episode will be called Peace and Edification, and we're going to study Romans 14 along with, I think, 1 Corinthians 8, and there's other references as well, but the premise of this uh, podcast is going to be the fact that uh, Christian liberty is not freedom to choose outside of the law of Moses. That's not exactly what Christian liberty is. That's the way that we, we define it. Anything not explicitly condemned in the Bible is fair game for the Christian. That is kind of the modern and maybe more liberal interpre interpretation of Christian liberty. So some people would say, I drink alcohol as an exercise of my Christian liberty because the Bible does not explicitly condemn just the drinking of it. It condemns the drunkenness. And I can toe that line. I can moderate myself. Okay, well, let's just accept that premise for a moment and say, does that really give us license to participate in this activity? I don't believe it does, and I don't believe that's what Paul would have taught if he were here today. I don't believe that's how Paul would answer the question. I believe that Christian liberty is that we are free from the law of Moses, but we are bound to the love of Christ. And I am free to choose within the law of love. And it's hard for me, like Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth me. It is what restrains me. So no, I am not restrained by the law of Moses. I'm not restrained by the Levitical code. I'm not restrained by Mosaic civil law. No. I, what is it that restrains the Christian? Well, nowadays, unfortunately, what restrains the Christian is simply their degree of self-tolerance. How much can they tolerate? And they push the limits and scream tolerance. You should tolerate me because fill in the blank, because I have Christian liberty. But that's not the way that Paul admonished early Christians who are struggling with this new relationship that they were having between the law of Moses and their newfound liberty in Christ. 
And they're like, well, what relationship do we have now with the law? So we could zoom out from the question and say, any area like this, any question like this, what's the right approach for the Christian? And the right approach for the Christian is not technically what can I do? Technically, what can I get away with? What can I do? What am I allowed to do? What is technically not wrong that I can do? That is nowhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament commended as a way that we make decisions. Paul said the way that you're supposed to make a decision here in this case is not what can I tolerate, but it is would my action bring peace with and the edification of the Christian brotherhood? That's the question I should ask before I engage in an activity. Not, is this technically wrong? Because even if it's not technically wrong, that doesn't mean that I should do it. It doesn't mean that. Paul gives the example of eating meat sacrificed to devils. Paul's like, look, okay, we know the idol is not anything. We know (laughs) there's no God on the other side of that sacrifice. You and I know that and the meat isn't polluted, and by eating it, you're not actually worshiping the devil unless you believe that you are. (laughs) So he's like, if you feel liberty to eat that, eat it. He says, but, but, don't just think about yourself. Think about the guy sitting next to you. Think about the guy sitting next to you who has just come out of devil worship, just come out of this false religion, and he sees you chowing down on a 24-ounce tomahawk ribeye that, and again, this is different than the argument of alcohol because there's nothing inherently, there's nothing inherently uh, self-control. There's nothing inherently in the meat that would compromise your ability to control yourself, whereas there, that is implicit in the alcohol use, which is obviously the only reason we're having this question because, again, it would be as stupid as asking, is drinking too much milk bad? It's like, well, that's not a moral question. It'd be a you know, diet question, a nutrition question. And we're not asking a nutrition question, a question about the nutrition of alcohol use. We're asking about, is it okay to have this, uh, to partake in an activity that causes this kind of effect in your body? But then also there's other issues as far as association and whatever. It's it's multifaceted for sure. All right, so how should the Christian uh, approach it? Even if I'm taking the worst case scenario, right? I'm I'm avoiding the the low hanging fruit and saying, okay, I accept your position. I accept your position theoretically that the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn it. Okay, so does that give us an excuse? No, because Paul said, if eating meat, if this falls into the same category, I'm not exactly saying that it does. I'm saying, what if it did? What if drinking alcohol fell into the same category as something as benign? as eating meat sacrificed to a false god. It doesn't. But let's just say that it did. Does that give me an excuse? No, because Paul said you have to think about your brother. You have to think about the person sitting next to you. And would it cause him to offend? That word means to grieve or to make sorrowful. Would it grieve him? Would it make him sorrowful? Also, would it be, he says, a stumbling block to him? Okay. So theoretically, let's just say you can drink and not get drunk and you can toe the line perfectly. What about your kids? One in seven people who drink become alcoholics. And I'm not a math major, but I think that's like, what is that? Hold on. I don't want to look stupid on purpose. I do that enough on accident. One divided by seven is like 17%, 14%. 
almost 14.5%. 14.5% of people who take a drink of alcohol become drunk. <laughs> become drunk. Become a drunkard. They become an alcoholic. Okay, so there's a 14% chance that me being a social drinker, for example, will cause some of the people around me, one of the people around me, to become an alcoholic. And in that case, Paul would say that I am responsible to some extent for that. I am. And I'm not to do anything that would cause my brother to offend, that would put a stumbling block in front of my brother. I can scream, but we're not under the law of Moses, and you should tolerate my Christian liberty. Or, or we should realize that we are under the law of love to Christ, and we are to esteem others better than our, ourselves. We are not to please ourselves, is what Paul said, but to edify our brethren. So Paul said about something again, let's just say it is benign. But Paul said something about eating meat, sacrifice to devils. He says, if it causes my brother to offend, I'll become a vegetarian. That's what he said. He wouldn't just stuff meat in his mouth and yell tolerance for the rest of his life, which is what we do. But that's not the example that we are given in the New Testament. Um, I was, and this is in the podcast, but I was watching a video. This is about another subject. Um, but a pastor a pastor got up and was talking about how they hadn't engaged in this one practice for most of their life, and now in their old age, they're starting to do it. And basically they said, you know, hey, I'm doing it, and so, you know, I'm not going to stand before you on Judgment Day. I'm going to stand before God on Judgment Day. And God's not going to ask you what you think about what I do. I was like, holy cow, like that's... That's quite an explanation, but that is that person explaining their conception of Christian liberty, that in matters not expressly forbidden by Scripture, you're free to do as you please, and people should not judge you. Um, but, I mean, that is a very shallow way of living that Paul would be ashamed of. And Paul said that when I make a decision, yeah, I don't have to go and consult the scruples of the law of Moses necessarily. I can eat lobster. I can eat shellfish. I'm not under the law of Moses, but I'm not without the law, he says in Romans. Paul said, I'm as a Gentile under the Gentiles, as a Jew under the Jew. He says, as under the law to those under the law, as without the law to those without the law, but not without the law to Christ. He's like, I'm not without law. I'm not lawless. Christ did not save me so that I could be lawless. I have moved from being under the law of Moses to being under the law of Christ. And Paul uses, by the way, we say, we're not under the law. We're not under the law. We're not under the law. You're wrong. We're not under the law of Moses, but we are still under a law. Paul calls it the law of faith, the law of love, the law of Christ. <laughs> so you're still under a law, and you have to understand what, what law means. Listen to the definition of law, just so you know. Uh, it's a rule, particularly an established or permanent rule prescribed by the supreme power of a state to its subjects. So here's a question. Are you and I under a supreme power's rule in our life, under the New Testament? Yes. Yes. And what did he say? He said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. 
That's your law. That's, that's your law. On this hang all the law and the prophets. What is it? Love God and love your neighbor. That's the law of Christ. The law of Moses says do and live. That's what the law of Moses says. The law of Christ says die to self and love. So what frustrates me about this topic is that the only thing we ever talk about is whether or not it's technically right or wrong to do the thing. And I'm saying that is to some extent irrelevant. It is obvious to anyone who cares to see, he that had ears to hear, let him hear, that there is no way to glorify God through drinking alcohol, and there is no way to bring peace and edification to my brothers and sisters in Christ by the use of alcohol. And that is the law that is supposed to compel me to act or not act. So I get frustrated when we just deal with this, the surface stuff where people are like, um, you know, they want something as childish and as uh, basic and unhelpful as a very clear, explicit um, rule that would somehow fit every generation forever. It's like there, there's, there are some of those, like thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal. But eventually we have to move beyond that, right? Eventually, and that's what the New Testament does. That's why Jesus said, ye heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. You heard that it hath been said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that if you look on a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery already. That is the type of argument that we should be giving to questions like this. And I believe if Jesus was asked this question, uh, he would not appeal necessarily to just some surface answer. He would appeal to the heart of the questioner. And that's what this answer is designed to do. There's two criteria that I should check before exercising any type of action, even under the guise of Christian liberty, and that is peace and edification. And I can push the limits and scream tolerance, but that's not a Christian virtue. It's just not. A Christian virtue is saying that I value the edification of my brother more than I value pleasing myself. Paul said, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. So, I mean, my goodness, if we shouldn't destroy each other over something like eating meat, <laughs> then we definitely shouldn't destroy each other. And then we definitely shouldn't destroy someone just because we are dead set that we want to drink alcohol. So I do not drink alcohol. I have never drank alcohol. Uh, and with God's help, I never will. Um, it's not good for your health and any alleged benefit can be had another way. Um, so I, I, I practice complete and total abstinence, and I think that everyone else should. And it's funny that there's even a secular movement in that direction nowadays, mainly for, for health. I see it on social media all the time. I say all the time. I have many times of, you know, quit alcohol use for 90 days and see what happens, and then, and then decide if you ever want to drink it. Well, why quit at all? And yet it's the Christians many times who are the ones, look, why, why make the argument? Why make the argument for alcohol? Because you want to do it. That's why. It's just because you want to do it. Why do you want to do it? <laughs> why do you want to do it? Because you don't want to be the square who doesn't. It's like, look, 
Magic Johnson didn't drink alcohol. I assume he probably does now, but didn't drink alcohol while he was playing basketball. He said, because it doesn't help my basketball career. It can only hurt my basketball career. He abstained from alcohol and drugs for that reason. Now he engaged in other things. But, okay, well, how, how does alcohol help to advance my Christian life? It doesn't. It, it can only disturb the peace to some extent, and it can only destroy those around me. It's not going to edify them. My drinking doesn't edify anyone. And so um, my choice to drink or not drink should not be based upon what I can tolerate, but upon the effect that my choice has on the faith of my brothers and sisters in Christ and upon the world at large. And so that's one way to answer that question. I said I was going to give short answers, and that's like a 20-minute answer. So there you go, but one, one down. And if you want to hear the, the whole explanation of that principle that should actually make our decisions as opposed to, again, Jesus, Jesus didn't appeal to the thou shalt nots in the Old Testament, right? He went a level deeper than that, and he went to the heart of the questioner. And I think that's what you have to do when you're talking with people, when you're dealing with people. Because people can wiggle out of technicalities, right? But if you get down to the heart of why they're asking the question, why exactly they want to do the thing, and then say, okay, how we're making this decision is not a Christ-like way to make decisions. I think that's the best way to handle it because everything else people can try to wiggle out of. All right, number two, what's the best advice for a young dating couple that knows they're going to get married? Um, the best advice. Um, so congratulations. That's exciting. I assume that means that you're probably about to get engaged or maybe you are engaged. I guess you'd say that you were engaged, so maybe you're talking about getting engaged, um, but that's exciting. Good for you. Um, so a few assumptions. Obviously, I'm assuming that you're saved. Um, I'm assuming that you're both saved and that you're both within the same approximate level of Christian maturity, which is also important. Um, we have enough like spiritual caveman marriages where one spouse bangs the other spouse over the head and drags them to church. Those usually don't work out so well. And a lot of times it's the guy who's lagging behind. Um, but one, obviously, if you are saved, if you're both saved, be not e unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Um, you know, that's in the New Testament, by the way, not just the Old Testament. Um, but then you're, you're in the same atmosphere spiritually. There's not a huge level of disparity uh, between your Christian maturity and your soon-to-be spouse. Um, beyond that, I would say, as far as preparing for marriage, uh, there's a few things. One, practically speaking, I would read the book Duel or Duet by Lewis Evans. Duel or Duet by Lewis Evans. It's an old book written in the 1950s, and it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic book. Short, um, read it together and go through it just chapter by chapter and, and discuss it. You'll find a lot of help in there. But one, as far as the engagement process, I would say as you prepare for marriage, again, just focus on that. Focus on preparation. Preparation. That is what this time is for, is to prepare you for marriage and realize that at the end of the process, you're going to be married kind of one way or the other, regardless of how the wedding goes or whatever, and you want to go into that as happy as you can be and as prepared as you can be. Um, you need to prepare spiritually. 
Um, you're going to be busy uh, when you're engaged planning a wedding and that kind of thing. And if don't let your spiritual condition slip during that time. That's really w- one of the greatest detriments to our spirituality is busyness. You know, Jesus went apart by himself. He went up into a mountain to pray. He went into the wilderness. He had those seasons of busyness, and then he went apart. And as you have these season, the season of busyness, find times to get alone. And I don't just mean with your, uh, with your fiance, but to get alone by yourself with God and make sure that you, you're taking care of business spiritually. Um, me and my wife, when we were going through the engagement process, we, we butted heads, uh, especially there towards the end. And I don't remember what it was about, but, you know, we're busy, I'm busy, I'm working, she's working, and we're planning a wedding, and it's getting down to, you know, the last, the last few days. And if I remember correctly, my wife might remember this differently than I do, but she was struggling to make a decision, which is kind of par for the course. But um, that's neither here nor there. We don't go to Cheesecake Factory together, you know, because that big menu, we're not, we're not looking, we're not, we're not doing that. We don't have time. We just don't have time. That's too many options. We go to the places that the chef just brings out the food, puts it down, but like, that's what you're having tonight. That's your food. So, nope, I'm not taking it back. Can't do that. But uh, my wife, she does really good at condensing things from a million choices to two choices, and then we decide between those two choices for the rest of our life. And I think this is one of those situations. And I got too upset, and we fought on the phone. And I'm just like, rah, rah, rah. and she's like, rah, 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 rah. and then like hung up. I think I hung up on her. Maybe she hung up on me. And I was furious. I was just mad. We're just frustrated. And really, it was probably about nothing. No big deal. But it's death by a thousand cuts. And so, obviously, I'm still living with my parents at the time. I fling open the back door of the house, and I go out into the backyard. And my parents have a bunch of trees, and there's a a pond and all this stuff in the backyard. And it kind of goes down into a valley and then comes back up. And I just go back in the woods and start blowing off steam. And I'm picking up rocks and throwing rocks at trees. I'm grabbing sticks and snapping them over my knee. And I'm like, I'm like jumping at trees and kicking stumps and you know whatever. I'm just running around in the woods like a crazy person. And my brother is looking out the blinds of his room like, I mean, the guy, he snapped. He's, he's, he's lost it. Dude's lost his mind. What's going on with this guy? And I did kind of lose it. Um, I wasn't in the best spiritual condition at the moment. And try to avoid that. Try to avoid that. Maintain yourself spiritually. Don't get so caught up with the wedding uh, that you forget that you are primarily the bride of Christ. And so make sure that you are both in your Bibles, you're both in prayer. And then, so prepare spiritually as you're preparing the wedding. Another thing is be careful with your finances. One of the biggest mistakes that young couples make is, well, that married people make, is they mismanage their finances and it becomes really the primary source of contention in the home. And you need to be figuring that out. And the wedding is your first big financial commitment to some extent together. You're, you know, you're, you're, if you're the bride, your dad's putting up an ungodly amount of money in most cases. Um, or maybe he's not, maybe it's a small wedding, but this is the first kind of joint financial venture that you guys have together. And so you need to learn how to manage that, and you need to learn how to 
um, make these types of decisions together and it not cause too much strain. So be preparing financially. Uh, make sure that you're, you have some money off to the side. Make sure your finances are together. You have an emergency fund. Your bills are paid. You're not going into marriage with a ridiculous, ridiculous amount of debt. Um, and then I would say uh, make sure you get good marital counseling. Get marital counseling. In our church, before one of the pastors here will marry a couple in our church, you have to go through marriage counseling. Get some good marriage counseling for somebody that you trust. Go to your pastor. If he offers marriage counseling, sit down with him. Maybe he does it formally. Um, maybe he has somebody on his staff who does that. Um, there's a lot of options that you can do with that. And I would say to the guy, Mr. Guy Guy, if you're listening, don't resent that, okay? I don't need no marriage counseling. He's like, yeah, you do. Like, that's exactly what somebody who needs marriage counseling really bad would say. So you need it. And just kind of, you know, accept that. But prepare yourself spiritually. And don't slack off on that. Don't start off your marriage spiritually on the wrong foot. Same thing with your finances. And then relationally, make sure that you are uh, getting as much wisdom from those who are successful as humanly possible. Read books on marriage. Um, that's, that's one of the things I wish I had done. My wife read all the marriage books when we were engaged. And uh, I read a couple. And I, I wish I could have had that to do over. Um, but um, so, you know, there's a, a few things. I know that's, that's really, really practical. But just, you know, I can look back to where we kind of did right and where we messed up. And so hopefully there's something in there that helps you. Uh, next, if you were married and your husband left you and divorced you for another woman and you did not want the divorce, but the judge granted it anyway, then is it a sin for the woman to find another mate? Well, first of all, I am really sorry that this happened to you. Um, I, f I feel for you. And unfortunately, your story is shared by many, many people. Uh, so it, this appears pretty cut and dry. Um, Jesus said, Matthew 5.32, he said, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. That's if she goes out and gets, gets married when they were not rightfully divorced to begin with. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. So in Jesus' time, people were using, again, like we talked about in the first question in response to the statement about alcohol, People were using the technicality of the law because Moses allowed divorce if you wrote a bill of divorcement. They were exploiting the technicality of the law in order to get out of marriages. And Jesus dealt with that by saying, wait a second, hold up. So if you are putting away your wife just for any old reason, you know, you're tired of her, um, you know, she's not doing something you think that she should be doing, you feel like she's not holding up She's not holding up her end of the, the deal to some extent. Um, and then you go marry somebody else. You didn't rightfully divorce her. And if you didn't rightfully divorce her, you're still married to her. And then if you go out and you marry someone else, you've committed adultery against your rightful wife. And all the Pharisees are going, oh, you know, ah, like they're free, freaking out. I mean, can you imagine uh, 
imagine Jesus just coming and exposing these guys like that, who were exploiting the law they pretended to believe in. So Jesus is saying, like, I mean, what is obviously true, which is, first of all, the only thing that could possibly be an impetus for a dissolution of marriage would be the thing that consummates it. And what is it that consummates marriage? That is sexual intercourse. That is what consummates a marriage. And our generation has lost sight of that. I'm reading a book right now, which is a defense of traditional marriage from an academic standpoint. It's very, very interesting. We have redefined marriage from something that is the whole person connecting with and becoming one with the other person to something that is primarily emotional and doesn't even require a physical oneness. But the Bible doesn't say that. Like the Bible says, why would you become one with a harlot? Why would you do that? And he's talking about becoming one flesh and one body. Well, only a man and a woman can do that, like biologically. That's just a, that's just a fact. And that is what consummates the marriage. So the reason why adultery is wrong, for example, is because it is the consummation of marriage with someone to whom you're not married. It is to, with someone to whom you're not married. It is the marriage act outside of marriage. That's why it's wrong. That's why fornication is wrong. So it is a false oneness without the wholesome oneness that marriage represents. And so Jesus says, look, divorce was never supposed to be a thing. Go all the way back to the garden. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And that is the design. That's the design. Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Every culture, every culture, I assume, every culture that I know of throughout history has allowed divorce on some basis. The only biblical basis, justified basis for adultery, I guess there's two, for a fornication. One is, <laughs> get your words right, the only uh, justification for divorce is adultery because it's the marriage act outside of marriage. Um, if, if, if a man leaves his marriage and he commits the marriage act with another woman, that puts his marriage in jeopardy. And again, technically, there is ground for divorce. Now, I had somebody I was trying to explain this to one time, and they said, but don't you think that the husband and the wife should, should try to work it out? And should I mean, don't you think saying that just gives people license to get divorced. I'm like, well, we have to teach what Jesus taught regardless of the consequences and regardless of how people might abuse it. I mean, you have to tell the truth, you know? You don't just make something up to try to mitigate against the dangers of telling the truth. Um, divorce is a reality. It just is. And it's never God's original purpose for the relationship, obviously. And it's bad for everyone. Listen, why does the government regulate marriage at all? It's because we all have an interest in whether or not you and your spouse stay together. We all do. Um, fatherlessness, I think it is. No, divorce. Divorce, 2008, they did a study. Divorce costs U.S. taxpayers $133 billion a year. So when you get divorced, you are putting a financial burden on everyone on everyone. And I'm not trying to compound anybody's guilt, but we started relaxing the reasons that you could get divorced. By the way, under Ronald Reagan, okay, uh, Christians love Ronald Reagan, 
conservatives love Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan's your, you know, your boy when it comes to no-fault divorces. He's the guy that pushed that through. And that was the beginning of the degradation of marriage in our culture. It wasn't a Supreme Court decision in 2015. It wasn't. It was no-fault divorces by Ronald Reagan, a conservative, a Republican, allegedly a conservative. As far as in this area, he wasn't. In a lot of ways, he was. But no-fault divorces from Ronald Reagan began the degradation of marriage in our culture. And that's well-established at this point because it said, look, I mean, you know, it's basically going back to this pharisaical idea of, I mean, look, just write a bill of divorcement, you know, it's okay. Jesus steps in and goes, wait a second, if you don't rightfully, if you don't have a, a proper reason to dissolve the marriage, then you're still married. <laughs> you're, you're, the, marriage, the marriage isn't null and void just because you say so. There's that, um, there's that clip, that meme of uh, Michael Scott from The Office where he misunderstands bankruptcy laws. And he says that he needs to declare bankruptcy, so he walks in the office and just says, I declare bankruptcy, you know? And that's kind of what we think divorce is. It's like, I'm, I, I declare divorce. Um, I want out. You know, Tom Brady and his wife just split up, and then you read the reason, you know, and, and it's just like, it's very sad. And these kids have to live through that, and uh, taxpayers have to fund it. And, um, you know, everybody has an interest in whether or not people stay together. But there's only one valid thing that throws the marriage into jeopardy, is that is when one of the two commits the marriage act outside of marriage. And technically speaking, yes, that gives the offended spouse the right to divorce. Um, and we can see how mercifully that might be a proper uh, instantiation uh, for, for people. Um, Jesus did not overturn that idea. He didn't. He criticized the flippant divorce of his time, and we need to do the same thing. We need to criticize the flippant divorce of our time. And um, yes, people should do everything that they can to save their marriages, everything that they possibly can. Um, when you understand that, uh, man, in, in the book, Duel or Duet, Lewis Evans talks about, you know, the, the, the marriage relationship being, being a sanctuary it's a, it's, it's a sanctuary. It's, it's like, a, man, how did he describe it? It's, it's this ideal. It's, this, it's, it's the ideal state. It's, a, it's two becoming one. And it's, it's a level of oneness and a whole giving of oneself to another person and, and life springing, new life springing out of that that then is taken care of. And then these, these children grow up, hopefully, to be responsible citizens. And, I mean, that's the ideal. And then when, when divorce enters, the ideal is shattered, and everybody bears the brunt of that. Everyone. It, it's not just about me. It's not just about my spouse. It's not even just about my kids, although that's reason enough. It's about everyone. It just kind of rips a fabric in society every time a marriage is dissolved. So you better have good reason. You better have good reason. And um, are there some marriages that maybe what has to happen at this point is that they are to be dissolved? Yeah. Okay. Yep. But we should do everything that we possibly can to avoid them. But in your case, if, and this appears to be your situation, if he left you for another woman and then divorced you, then according to what Jesus 
said himself, you would have a rightful case for divorce and remarriage. Um, and I think that that's why in the beginning I said it's pretty cut and dry. So if he left you for another woman and joined himself unto that other woman and divorced you, uh, then yes, uh, biblically speaking, that is a valid reason for divorce, even though you did the right thing by wanting to save your marriage and you did everything that you could by your own statement to try to preserve it. And I admire you for that. And um, I pray, I know that God is close to you. I know like Hagar, God sees you and he hears you. And so I trust that God will provide for you. And so not just um, maybe a partner, maybe that's in his plan for you, but I'm glad that we have a comforter. I'm glad that God can take a place in our life that no one else can fill. And you are, at the end of the day, the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. You're a part of the bride of Christ. And so I hope that this answer is an encouragement to you. Um, the only other case for divorce outside of what we've already stipulated is the idea of an unbelieving person to part. And this could also be a part of your situation as far as Paul talked about if your spouse is unsaved and they leave you because of the faith, essentially, that's not the life I'm going to live. I don't want to live that life. He says that the unbelieving depart, let them depart which that is quite a statement, and nobody teaches that. Like, nobody teaches that. But he said, if they depart, let them depart. A brother or sister is not in bondage in such cases. And uh, that is in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. And so there you have someone who's dissolving their marriage over religious reasons. And I don't know if that applies to your situation at all, but I did want to throw that out there as well. So, praying for you. Okay, and next. Uh, according to Scripture, how important is music in the worship service? <laughs> so, uh, interesting. Well, it's very important. Um, it's, it's very important. Um, I think the reason why this is being asked is because of the over- use and the overhyped nature of worship music today to where it is the whole service. <laughs> and the purpose of going to church is the worship, which is just kind of like a, uh, a modern colloquialism for music. That's what we mean. We mean music when we say worship. Um, but we do find all throughout the Bible, we find music and worship linked together. That is true. It's absolutely true. But you're talking, your question is more specific. You say in the worship service or in the church service, when believers gather together, how important is music? Well, it's important. It's certainly important. But Paul makes it clear, to give a short answer in his writings, that the whole entire reason why we have come together is Christ. And it is the preaching of him in the church that makes church what it was meant to be. That's what it is. And so music has to be a servant to that message. That's what it has to be. 
And the moment that music takes the top priority in a service, it had to displace something. And a lot of times what it seems like is being displaced is the preaching of the Word of God. And there's a practical reason for that. Nowadays, there's a study that came out uh, many years ago called God as a Drug, and essentially one of the main strengths of a lot of megachurches, the, the big megachurch movement, is the exaggerated forms of music and worship that give people a huge high. And I don't mean that in a, I'm not saying that in a disrespectful way as far as the word high, and I'm not, I'm not being cutting or cruel. That's, that's literally what it is. That's literally what it is. It is a euphoria that is given. Well, we don't often, sometimes you do, we don't often get that same euphoria uh, sitting listening to the preaching. So if the purpose of the service is to prescribe God as a drug um, to make people feel better, to send them on their way, which is what church has become, make no mistake about it, then you would do that through music. And that is exactly what we have done, even to the point of adopting very secular, carnal styles of, of uh, music and singing in order to elicit that. And it's why you have seen, just over the past, I mean, 20, 30, 40 years, the continual degradation of the music itself to more and more carnal forms because it has to be a stronger and stronger drug to administer or to, uh, to create the same response. So music is important. It's definitely important. Um, Paul talked about that, singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, those are things that we're supposed to do. I mean, uh, songs are very important when it comes to worship, so important that God included a songbook in the Bible, um, the book of Psalms. And uh, the man who was the apple of God's eye and you know, who knew God's heart as good as anyone was a psalmist. He was a songwriter. Um, so it's very important. But music serves the preaching. It serves the preaching of the truth. And we should never sacrifice truth for euphoria through music, ever. And if you are in a, a church, and I don't say this lightly, I do not say this lightly, but if you are in a church that sacrifices truth for euphoria, get out. Leave. Um, that is not a proper New Testament practice. It's just not, or Old Testament practice for that matter, uh, it's not. So music has always been used in the worship of God. Um, let's just put it this way. You can have church without music, uh, but you can't have church without preaching. Uh, you, I mean, you, just, you can't. That's the whole entire purpose of the thing. Paul is very clear on that. So it is important, but we need to keep it in its proper perspective. All right, number next, number five. Are there different levels of hell like in Dante's Inferno? Well, I've read Dante's Inferno. Uh, I don't pretend to understand everything in it. There's a lot of references that I don't get, and um, I like poetry. I like to read poetry, and that style is very difficult to me, but there are a few things that I, I gleaned from it. And, you know, Dante is, is pulling from a common understanding of hell, which is that the worst sinners 
reserve for themselves the worst judgment. And that's a scriptural idea. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.22, it talks about the lowest hell. For a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell. Well, if there's a lowest hell, then there's got to be degrees in hell. And shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the mountains, the foundations of the mountains. Uh, Psalm 86.13, for great is thy mercy toward me. I assume this is one of the Psalms of David. And thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. So, and I understand again that David isn't making a doctrinal statement. I understand that. I get that. But again, there's that idea of degrees, of degrees of suffering in hell. That's still implicit in the idea. Luke 12, Jesus gives the story of the servants, and uh, he culminates it and says, But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes, for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. So again, there's the idea that God is just even in his judgment of the wicked, which to whom much is given, much is required. And people with little knowledge are punished little, and people with much knowledge are punished much. And that just makes sense. And it's from kind of a overview of God's dealing with the wicked in statements such as these that we draw out the idea that there are degrees of suffering in hell. And I believe that that is most likely the case. And Dante isn't necessarily making a theological statement when he writes about that. He is pulling from something that Christianity has kind of always assumed to be true. And that's why when we read Dante's Inferno, it just makes sense. Um, and by the way, what's interesting is that the, the people in the lowest hell in Dante's Inferno are those who have committed the sin of betrayal. That, in Dante's mind, was the fundamental sin, was betrayal. And I believe, and Dante's Inferno, by the way, there's some rough, rough parts in there, including the description of the lowest hell, which I believe, if I remember correctly, um, was ice, not hell. I don't understand the significance of that. Somebody would have to open that up to me. I could be misremembering. And where Satan himself has Judas in his hand, and he's like gnawing on his head. It's like, what is going on? But um, there you have the ultimate liar, the ultimate cheat, um, the ultimate scoundrel who is, uh, you know, destroying forever and tormenting the person who betrayed Jesus. So, again, Dante is pulling kind of from a, a cultural understanding that we have gleaned from these kinds of statements throughout the Bible. So I, I believe God is just in his judgment of the wicked. I believe that's obviously true. And uh, you see that in his dealings with uh, the Amorites, with his dealings with Sodom and Gomorrah, um, that God gave the Amorites 400 years before their iniquity was, quote, full, before he poured out his judgment on them. Uh, he came down to see the Tower of Babel to give them a fair hearing. He came down to see Sodom and Gomorrah to give them a fair hearing. Jesus said that the generation of his day would be treated, would be punished in a more harsh way than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Well, I mean, because they had more truth, like way more truth. And by the way, that means America will be judged much more harshly as well. I mean, name a country. I mean, I guess Israel will be number one. Behind Israel, what other country ever, ever has had more truth per capita 
in the United States. Um, we are going to be judged and judged very well. We are being judged. <laughs> we are we are actively being judged as we speak. Um, but God is fair in that judgment. So, is it reasonable to believe that there are degrees of suffering in hell? Yes, I'd say that that is reasonable to believe. All right, number six. Do you think there could be conscious organisms outside of Earth? So, uh, that's a it's a fun it's a fun question. It's one that a lot of people probably are interested in right now because of all the talk about UFOs. Um, so, to give a pretty concise answer, do I think that there are any? No, I don't think that. Uh, do I believe that the Bible supports the conclusion that there are other conscious beings? Uh, physical conscious beings, I don't mean angels or, or devils, in the universe. No, the Bible never lends itself to that idea, ever. Um, but that doesn't mean that if we found out that on Mars there was an ancient civilization and they were, you know, conscious and they had language and whatever, they had poetry and art, uh, that that somehow would just destroy the Bible. That's not true. And because, for example, like, although the Bible makes it clear that Jesus' work was on earth, uh, the prophets prophesied about earth, uh, the earth is what is restored in Revelation, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the redemption is very earth-centered, obviously, um, and, I mean, how could it be otherwise? But, um, you know, the cosmos themselves, obviously, like it talks about the stars falling from heaven and things like that in the Bible, but there's definitely a cosmic aspect to redemption, but it's very earth-centered, and Jesus was incarnated on the earth, and I don't think it makes any sense that Jesus would have also then incarnated himself on Mars and died for them and then incarnated himself on Venus and died for the people who lived there. That doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't know how you square that with the Bible. Um, however, if there were people in the universe who were, let's say, subhuman, so animal-like in some way, to where they don't have a soul, then perhaps that could fit in—well, it would. It, it could fit in with the Christian narrative, because they wouldn't need redemption, much like your cat and your dog don't need redemption. I mean, but they need it, but they're not going to get it. But— um, so it doesn't apply to them, or uh, a race of people who are superhuman, and sin doesn't apply to them either, because they can't sin. Um, is that possible theoretically? I guess. I guess it is possible. And an interesting mental exercise is played out in the Lewis Space Trilogy. So C.S. Lewis wrote the Ransom Trilogy, the first one's called Out of the Silent Planet, um, that kind of explores this idea a little bit. It's one of the themes of the book is, well, how would you, you know, literally what happens is Ransom goes to Mars, and, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Ransom goes to Mars, and there's all these people there underneath the surface, and uh, they know about Jesus, which is very, really interesting, and they know about God, and uh, it's a fascinating idea. The last few chapters really spell that out. So if you're interested in that, I would really encourage you to read that book. But do I think there are some? No. I think a lot of what is interpreted as such 
is not extraterrestrial activity, but interdimensional activity um, by, by what we call angels and demons. And again, we got to realize that those terms, even though they sound mythological today, unfortunately, to, um, to let's say, the, uh, the, the simple-minded, uh, they are real things. They are real things. And so, anyway, that's a fun question. So um, we're going to end it there, and there's a lot more that we could go into. I think there's some other questions that we didn't get to, but I hope that was helpful to you, and we went about an hour. So uh, we will be back next week. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless. Bye-bye.